We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. You know, I barely survived writing the book. It took me a year to write it because I had been trying to figure out form and what the hook would be. And once I got it, I wrote like a maniac. And every time I looked up to Ray, I saw a glass of Jameson next to me. Because Baldwin has this, he's an exacting companion, right? There's this demand that in order to say anything about the world, you have to deal with your own interior wounds and mess, right? So as I was writing, I realized it was a realization that happened as I'm putting sentences on the page. You know, I'm this scared little boy. I'm this vulnerable little boy. Baldwin was forcing me to deal with the scaffolding of my own lives, to be honest, so that I could get the sentence right on the page. Eddie Glaude is one of those intellectuals who makes the life of the mind seem cool. I've been inspired by his MSNBC work and his writing, and now he's got a new book entitled Begin Again about the lessons James Baldwin has for us today. I love Baldwin, gigantic fan, and I'm a big fan of Glaude's, so this conversation was a real treat. You'll get half of it here for free, and for the other half, go to patreon.com slash show and subscribe to get access to the full version of our Wednesday shows and to our Friday Patreon exclusives with people like Malcolm Gladwell, Jelani Cobb, Greg Tate, Joyce Carol Oates, and many more. For now, it's Eddie Glaude on Torre Show. What do you think is happening right now in America? I see both an intense desire on the part of black people and their allies to demand change. And I also see a very extreme emotional reaction on the part of a lot of white people saying, oh, hell no. So uh, it's it's not just Black Lives Matter. It's also like later for that, like F that. So talk about, you know, all that you see is going on right now. Well, I, I think the country is facing a moral reckoning. And um, it is facing once again uh, this choice about what what it will be. And typically in its history, when it's faced a moment like this, um, it has doubled down on its ugliness. So uh, it's a moral reckoning of sorts. It's not just an inflection point, as General Mattis said, right? In some ways it is, but it's a moral reckoning uh, because for generation, it feels as if the country is broken. Millennials and Gen Zers, they've come of age 
in in what repeated disasters, layered disasters from climate change to uh, Hurricane Katrina to Great Recession to mass shootings, police murders, uh, global pandemic. I mean, they have experienced. 9/11. Yeah, the country is broken for them, and so they're choosing either to go a progressive route or the fascist route or authoritarian route because Dylan Roof wasn't a baby boomer, right? So, 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 so we're seeing them reach for languages, vocabulary, systems to respond to, I think, a substantive judgment that the country's broken. And then we all saw a public lynching that brought it all together, you know? Uh, um, so it's, 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 it's a crisis of, of a classic sense, right? Where all the contradictions are in full view and there's the possibility that we could be otherwise or that the whole thing collapses. One of the things that I really love and admire about the millennials is how they say, I'm not going to do the work to teach you, right? Like we were about the same age when we were in high school and college and white people said dumb things. And we thought it's part of our mission, perhaps, to explain to them what's what. And sometimes you get into arguments that are very emotionally exhausting, and maybe you feel it the whole day of like, Jesus, in third period, I had an argument with this kid, and maybe it worked out, maybe it didn't, but I'm just drained the whole day, and he's going on. And when the millennials started saying, it's not my job to explain and do your homework for you, at first I was like, oh, that's not the way we, and then I was like, wow, that is really brilliant and empowering. Um, and you're in touch with more millennials than I am, but is that not part of why we're seeing a demand for revolution now that they are willing to stand up and demand it in a way that Gen Xers were not? Um, I think perhaps, I, I, I love this shift, right? Um, and I get it out of, you know, I saw Baldwin make it similarly. Uh, in the latter part of his career, where you know Michael Thelwell says that um, the nature of his we changed, right? Who was he talking to? And the way in which I parse that is, uh, we have a finite amount of civic energy. Do we spend that energy trying to convince people who hold noxious commitments that they ought not to hold them, or do we spend our energy trying to build a world where those commitments have no quarter to breathe? And millennials and Gen Zers seem to be doing the latter, right? I don't have enough energy to try to convince you that you ought not to believe that white people ought to be valued more than others. I'm just going to build a world where that doesn't look like, where the world doesn't look like that. And then you have to choose, right? And I think that, I think that's a, I think that's a, a more, A, it's more efficient. <laughs> um, and I think it's a better, a healthier way for us uh, to do the to do the social justice work that the world requires. Do you think this time is different? It can be. I think could there's. Be. Yeah, yeah, uh, it could be, but we're not sure. It all depends. You know, we're in it. There's no guarantee where we're going to end up on the other side of this. Um, I think what's the the circumstances are different. The material realities of the of the American empire were in decline. Um, you think about the global pandemic. There's a commonality, a cons- you know, a kind of commonality of vulnerability that connects folk in ways that weren't there prior to that moment. I mean, Corona, COVID nineteen will kill anybody, even though it's killing some people disproportionately. 
but it will kill anyone. And I think that oh, that that generalized sense of vulnerability, like I think, um, offers us opportunities for solidarity that we wouldn't necessarily have if that wasn't present. So there are moments there, and then of course the greed is just out of control. You know, in the midst of this, where people are losing jobs and all, people are making billions of dollars in the midst of this, and then you look at how the PPE money was distributed. You go, oh my God, graft! All of this stuff is happening. So uh, the moment is different, but there's no guarantee about its outcome. You talk about the greed. I think that you know because of the way that Trump and Republicans are trained to see things as CEO and big business first, um, they were unable to see. We were in in March, especially. We were in a moment of political and spiritual chaos. And if they had said, "We're going to take a page out of the progressive Andrew Yang playbook. We're going to give every American three thousand dollars a month for the next six months, culminating right after November," <laughs> he would have coasted. I think he would have coasted to reelection, but he would never think to do something like that. Well, you know, they would never think to do something like that, not just simply Trump. So you, what we're seeing in, in, in kind of 3D is the kind of moral bankruptcy of a political ideology, right? So the reason why we don't have a national strategy with regards to uh, the global pandemic has everything to do with the devolution uh, of, of, of governance to so-called the states and local areas, right? The kind of constant attack on big government is by definition being bad. So in the moment of a crisis, which requires some kind of central central force that could uh, that could dictate policy across the different states, they've been they've been engaged in the systematic, uh, shall we say, destruction of, of of federal of the federal government as part of their ideology, right? And so then you think about what Germany did, or what parts of Europe did in the face of the pandemic. They've never experienced unemployment like we're experiencing. Never got above six percent. Why? Because they chose to keep people employed, right? They chose to pay businesses to keep their folks employed. They, they've spent an enormous amount of money so that people could stay home and be safe and they could flatten the curve and then try to open it in a reasonable way. Instead, we chose massive unemployment and long food lines in the richest country in the history of the world. It reveals an ideology that's bankrupt at its core. To try to pretend that nothing is happening. Um, yeah. as, as we as a nation are struggling with what do we do with police, I wonder, where are you? Are you an abolitionist or where do you fall on the spectrum? I'm not quite an abolitionist, but I do believe in defunding the police. And what, and that's a slogan. That's a shorthand for a complicated set of, uh, of positions really around uh, budgets that reflect what we value and who we value. So I don't think you know, municipalities should be spending the majority of their budgets on police. I think we need a broader and more humane understanding of public safety. In fact, I would want those monies to be redistributed in such a way, Ture, where we have a broad public infrastructure of care, not just a social safety net, but a public infrastructure of care within which public safety is a component. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite at abolition, but I understand the argument. Like, I don't think uh, the woman in, in Central Park should be prosecuted and thrown in jail. I don't believe in that kind of move. Uh, I'm not a carceral feminist. I'm not a carceral kind of guy. But I do believe some people might need to be locked up. I haven't been convinced of that yet. I mean, Amy Cooper in particular, um, sorry about the woman in Central Park, she tried to ruin his life. 
She did. She she tried to kill him, right? I mean, it, it is attempted murder. Nobody's willing to call it that, but she just threw the dice and said, like, whatever happens, your life ruined, you get beat up, you get killed. Like, I don't really care. Um, I don't see how we don't advocate for her. I mean, you know, the, the justice isn't going to do whatever it does, but I don't see how we don't advocate for her getting the book thrown at her. Why should she get sympathy that innocent black men don't elicit? So I've, I'm not giving her sympathy. That's I think that's a misdescription of what I'm doing. What It's a broader acclaim about when carcerality is an answer to, uh, um, shall we say, uh, wrongdoing. Uh, and we all kind of have a general agreement that what she did was was not only wrong, but cruel, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm of the mindset that um, just as uh, kind of flat uh, imposition of carcerality has, has locked up a lot of people I love, a lot of Black folk, unjustly, uh, even though they were doing wrong, right? I don't think that we should apply it, I'd, like I don't think we should apply it to someone who's selling just a little bit of weed, I don't think I, we should apply it to Amy Cooper in this instance, right? Because I don't think carcerality is the answer to all wrongdoing in the country. And I think that's part of the shift that we're making, that abolitionists are trying to get us to make, right? They go, they go a bit farther than I would, but I think that's part of the shift that folks are trying to get us to make. I mean, would it not give pause to all the <laughs> other people who would make that phone call. There's a black man dancing in the street. There's a black man sleeping in his car. All those things that you and I both are fearful on a daily basis. I I just, I'm in a town that I'm not normally in outside of New York City right now. And I'm constantly thinking about what if when I'm doing my workout that somebody says, oh, and then I have to explain to the police, well, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And if I don't explain it well enough, then... Who knows what? And wouldn't you want to give all those people pause? Think about Amy Cooper. Mm-hmm. How she, you know, she did a month, two months, whatever it is, or how she got arrested and perp walked and she didn't do time, but she had to pay a fine. And wouldn't you want to give all those people pause to think about like, ooh, if I drop a dime and it's and it's bogus, uh, it resound no. on me. So I'm not suggesting that no punishment should follow. Right. I mean, so if she gets fined, you know, a hundred grand and has to come out for ten thousand dollars or something like that, you know, that that's that's going to cost somebody to pause. What I'm talking about is throwing trying to throw people in jail. Right. In prison. Um, And and we 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 imprison. um, And I think uh, an inordinate number of our people. It's evil what we have done as a nation um, in the name of safety. And I think in order to be consistent across the board, as I make that argument about nonviolent crime uh, with regards to black folk and brown folk, I want to make that argument about nonviolent crime across the board. Right. And so I want to hold her accountable. Let's be clear. I want to hold her accountable. But I'm 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 not I'm not going as far as to say that, you know, that incarceration is 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 the best response to what she did. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. If you love Torre Show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a black and progressive perspective. I just don't understand why it's considered absurd for black people to carry a gun, but it's not considered absurd for white people to carry a gun. You misunderstand my position. You can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Torre Show. Your book looks at Baldwin (laughs) and how he can speak to the present moment. And, uh, I mean, the thing about Baldwin that always grips me first is the beauty of the sentences and the use of language, which is just gorgeous. Um, can you can we just talk about that for a minute? Just the, just the just the the stylish use of language, which is never like over flashy, like look at me. But you know these gorgeous long sentences, and then a perfect short one. And th- I mean, he's a fantastic writer. 
Yeah, you remember Toni Morrison said she found language in his writing, right? Um, and that's saying something. And you know, this is a combination of of an apprentice to an apprenticeship to Henry James, uh, the uh, the uh, King James Bible, uh, uh, and uh, an extraordinary ear to black speech. Uh, all of it is shaping the way in which this high school graduate, right? I mean, that's all you can do, right? This guy who never did anything beyond high school, right? Um, outside of just be, just being this extraordinary reader and 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 genius, uh, crafting perfect sentences at the level of pitch, balance, right? So one of the things that I, I had a you know I've been walking and reading with Baldwin for about thirty years, and uh, every time you read a sentence, you just get up. You know, some sentences make you get up and start pacing. Like, Shit! <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but this is why I think he's, you know, he's one of the great uh, American writers, the most insightful critic of American democracy and race that we ever have produced, that we've ever produced. Well, okay, so what what do you glean from his work that he would say about now that is most relevant about now? Oh, that's a great question. So the book really is me kind of writing with Jimmy about our current moment, not about him. Right. And part part of what I'm trying to do is to learn or to mine his resources because he grappled with the country at a moment in which the country turned its back on black people. He grabbed he was the, the period I'm looking at is the late Baldwin. The most important nonfiction I believe that he ever wrote is 1972, No Name in the Street. The first book he wrote after King's assassination, where he tried to commit suicide in 1969, where he fell to pieces, right, as a result, in so many ways. And so part of what I'm looking at is what did he see in the aftermath of the betrayal? What is he peeping? How does he pick up the pieces? How does he kind of, gl- he, 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 he glimpses that Reagan is on the horizon in 1980, a, B, a B-list Hollywood actor. That the nation is making choices that would re- that produce that would produce that outcome. And remember, Reagan for black people during this period is as is as bad as George Wallace, because he's the governor of California during the Panthers. He's the governor of California during Angela Davis. He's as bad as George Wallace. And the nation elected this guy as the redeemer in chief, right? So Gil Scott Heron is going to sing "Winter in America," right? As soon as this dude comes into office, right? So part of what I'm doing is mining how he responds, because he says, look in the ruins and maybe you will find something useful. And so how did he deal with his despair and disillusionment helped me deal with my despair and disillusionment as the country vomited up Donald Trump? The, um, when Baldwin talks about his father and his oh. father's funeral and the, the glass on the ground from the riot and he's burying his father and he's not really that sad, but he is sad, but he's not. And his father's oldest child is here and his baby. I mean, that sticks in the mind for me like, like a short film. Yeah, I mean, he has a cinematic eye for sure. Um, this is early Baldwin. He's basically a baby. This is Notes of the Native Son, right? Um, but you know what's interesting about his writing about his dad is that it evolves over time. So by the time you read the later Baldwin, the more mature Baldwin, he's much more generous to his father. He understands him more so, not as someone who succumbed to the horrors of, of a white supremacist society, a society and he 
condemned him and blamed him, but more so in a loving way, he understood him as the victim of certain sorts of forces, right? So in Notes of a Native Son, he's setting up the conditions under which he's trying to create himself as this artist. I mean, Baldwin is, James Baldwin is this extraordinary consequence of an act of will, right? By the time he gets to to the close to where he's taking his last breath, he's much more loving with regards to the stepfather who took him through that brook of fire. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently, arguing with several people about, is should we leave America, right? Is it too damaged? Is it too dangerous, right? And Baldwin, my God, and Richard Wright talk about, like, you know, flowering in Europe and being loved and being able to be their full, true selves, and I am not of the mind that we should leave America. I think, mm-hmm. you know, if your friend, if your dear friend was sick, you would go to their hospital room. You wouldn't say, I'm out of here. I'm leaving you alone. And I think that if if good, smart people leave America now, um, it will be damaging for the entire globe because America has a special place in the globe. It's not abandoning any other country. It's abandoning the last superpower. Um, but what do you think about that? And what do you think Baldwin has to say to you and us about whether or not we should continue being participants in the American project in America, or if we should not try it in Paris and feel, and see what it is to be actually loved and accepted? Yeah. You know, I think I write about this in in the book and, and, you know, Baldwin, uh, leaves to, leaves for Paris in 1948, um, comes back. Um, sells, you know, Giovanni's room, amen. You know, he's doing all of this stuff, goes back again. So he's always moving back and forth. But the distance allows him to think about America. So Baldwin never goes, exile is the wrong word, right? So he's trying to create the critical distance to think about the country in a way that's that's um, that's useful, that has... Um, that, that where he's not suffocated by its practices so that he could see it more clearly. Um, so I call it an elsewhere in the book that we all need to find an elsewhere. And that elsewhere is not so much about going to a different country, but creating the requisite distance from all of the chaos of the country so that we can see it more clearly. And that elsewhere could be with a community of loved ones who allow you to laugh full belly laughs and and to rage, right, to be yourself. Uh, It could be in the context of grassroots organizing when you are, are rejecting the status quo, but you have to find an elsewhere that gives you an opportunity to exhale, to replenish, so that you can see the country more clearly because the rage inducing practices can lead your eyes, leave your eyes bloodshot, you know? So, you know, you make an, uh, of course you make an excellent point. And, you know, when I did a deep study on black lives matter a couple of years ago for Rolling Stone, one of the big things that I found was that media loves to talk about them shutting down a highway, right. Or making a big political proposal, but a huge part of the movement for them is self-care. And that can be going on a date with your husband, sitting in the park with just black people and just, just you know, reconstituting your spirit. And that's part of what you're talking about. Exactly. And, 
that is critical work, especially for us who feel under attack all the time. You know, marching the streets is important, but also recovering yourself is important. Yeah, there's this wonderful short Turkish film entitled Another Place. And there's a moment when Baldwin is standing, I think he's in Taksim Square, and he's, he's, at, he's sitting on the balcony looking over. And, you know, the background is, it moves into shadow and it becomes glimmering lights. And Baldwin is staring, staring at the camera. He has his, his brow furled. And as he's staring, suddenly something happens and then he breaks out into this full smile. And it's just joy, right? And Turkey, Istanbul, was his place. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low-sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it, and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market dot com slash Torrey thrive market dot com slash Torrey on March 16th 2000 two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta Jamil Alamine a Muslim leader and former black power activist was convicted but the evidence was shaky and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial my name is Mosi Secret and when I started investigating this case in my hometown I uncovered a dark truth about America from Tinderfoot TV Campside Media and iHeart Podcasts Radical is available now Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. After King was murdered and he fell apart, Istanbul and that cohort of folk gave him the space to put the pieces back together so that he could begin again, right? And I think we all need to seek spaces that, that give us the occasion to smile at that level of depth, if that makes sense. Um, for so many of us, that is church, right? Yeah. Is it, is, is the church a, an institution that is decreasing in power in American life over the past decades? They're struggling with the material conditions under which they do church. You know, one of the things about millennials and Gen Zers is they, they, they don't get golden watches, right? So Millennials and Gen Zers do not work at one place from the time they graduate college to or high school to the time they retire. They're moving every five years. So the idea of brick and mortar as the basis of church when your communities are transforming in the way that they're transforming uh, shifts how church is being mediated by technology, uh, especially now in, in the age of COVID-19. Uh, what does it mean to do church? Um, so I think uh, the idea of the community church as this this site of 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 of, of community, more broadly speaking, uh, is morphing. 
but I do know that there's some folk who are doing it really well. <laughs> there, there are. I I see the impact very much in music, right? Because uh, not to privilege one generation over another, but when we were younger, most of the artists had come up in church, right? And so, and a lot of people talk about like that, those, that first audience that had to listen to you when you were bad, when you were growing and like, let you keep coming back and performing. And like, you know, you had this fantastic choir that would like help lift you up and like, you learn how to sing. And even people, some people, early rappers were learning how to perform by going to church. And you get to this era in time, and most people do not have that as a early teaching ground or proving ground to then launch their musical careers. And I think in some ways, music is impoverished for not, black music in particular is impoverished for not having that as a, a, a first base. Well, I'll leave that discussion to you, Brother Torre, but you know. It, it just, well, what do you it, think? Do you disagree? I don't really know. I don't really have enough. Um, I don't have, a, I haven't thought about it enough to draw a substantive conclusion. Um, what I do know, I do know this, which echoes uh, an aspect of your point, And that is that black institutional life is eroded, right? And what that means for for how we weather storms, how we express black life, um, it has yet, I think, to be to be chronicled, right? So, not only are we so black cultural spaces, right, have been disappearing, and in, in you know institutional cultural spaces have been disappearing over the last few decades, and COVID nineteen has 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 kind of accelerated that. So what does it mean for those spaces to not be available? And then how does that then impact uh, our art? But what I do know this, I do also do know this, is that, you know, we're, we're, we're innovative folks. Uh, and, you know, they, they cut the music classes. And so, you know, Grandmaster Flame will still go in there and take an electronics class. And, and then, boom, we get it. So you never know. You never know what happens with creativity under conditions of, of scarcity, you know? I know a lot about... Um what you think because i see you you know on msnbc doing your thing i don't know a lot about who you are and who is eddie from moss point mississippi (laughs) and before you had you know was it two master's degrees and a phd you know who who was that person who came up before before all that before the world started to see you you know i'm 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 a i'm in love with the life of the mind so, you know, I'm an intellectual, right? I'm a student of Cornell West and Jeffrey Stout and Al Rabito. Um, I was the former president of the American Academy of Religion, um, you know, the largest body of scholars of religion in the world. Um, I've been uh, spending the majority of my career thinking with others about African-American life using religion as my point of entry. But I'm a country boy at the, at the core who went to Morehouse. Um, my journey to the Ivy Leagues is not the journey you're supposed to take. You know, from Mississippi to Morehouse to Temple, then from Temple to Princeton, and now where I am today, you know. So um, part of what I've been doing uh, over all of these years before all of the television and all of this stuff is, is reading and thinking, doing what we're supposed to do. Um, and it's precisely, I think, in this moment 
that I'm able to draw on that bibliography, on all of that reading and thinking to actually help us think about this current moment, perhaps in a different way. Thanks so much to Eddie for a great interview. And thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, and Michelle. Join us over at patreon.com slash show to get an extra episode every Friday only for Patreon subscribers and to get more today, right now, from me and Eddie. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torrey and on Instagram at Torrey Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torrey Show. Torrey Show is written by me, Torrey, and produced by Jackie Garfano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and next Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.